Psalm 102, a prayer of an afflicted man when he is faint and pours out his lament before the Lord. Psalm 102, beginning in verse 12. But you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come. For her stones are dear to your servants, her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All kings of the earth will revere your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute and he will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high from heaven. He viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and is praised in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. Amen. Hymn number 560. Our scripture reading is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Amen. Steve, can you come lead us in prayer? As we continue in our series on God's garden, we come to the final chapters of the Bible and the full description of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And this really is the city that God built. Of course, that has a connection back to the original chapters of Genesis, doesn't it? Because if you think about the city as parallel to the garden, then we have a connection because God is the one who actually planted the original garden. Adam did not plant the garden, God did. So it is fitting for John to describe the new Jerusalem in these final chapters as the city that God built. Just as Adam was called to live and tend the garden, so God's people are called to live at peace and rest in his holy city. Now last week I emphasized how the story the Bible tells is actually a family story. And I really think that the gospel when presented this way can make a real connection to our, to our particular culture and our particular day that has lots of broken families has lots of difficulties within families that create a lot of consternation and strife. Well, the Bible really does tell a story of a broken family. God the Father made Adam the first son, and Adam disobeyed and became estranged from God. He was cast out of the garden. He was disinherited from the garden. He had his inheritance. He had, a, had this beautiful place that God gave him by grace, and he was disinherited from his garden. Same thing happened to Israel. Moses told the wilderness generation that they are no longer God's children in Deuteronomy 32.5. Interesting idea of how that is presented just like what happened to Adam. The very same thing happened to Israel. And the purpose of the coming Messiah and his redemption was to reconcile and restore this family from the very beginning. And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. That's where Jesus comes into history in the context of that family story going back to the first chapter's of Genesis. That's what the gospel of Jesus does. It makes us children of God, 
part of the household of faith. And so you see all these family images all the way through the New Testament that are based off of this recurring theme. But by the time we get to the end of the Bible, the imagery of God's people has grown to a much larger order than a single family unit. Now we are talking about a city and we're talking about a nation and we've seen how that works that develops in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. This story of the Bible tells us is now no longer merely a family story but also a story of how God's family grows up into a city, into a nation. And isn't that what families do? Families grow up into nations and cities. Israel in the Promised Land is the family of Jacob and his twelve sons all grown up. And we can see the same thing in, in, in our culture today with our country because we talk about those early Americans as our founding fathers. It's a family metaphor, even though the, the connection that we have to them is most likely not biological. We actually consider ourselves still their children as Americans. We are sons of our founding fathers. And we have America now today as a family all grown up. Very, very basic, simple concept to understand. And actually, that American experience is a good example to understand the principles of the New Jerusalem because we in America are an immigrant nation. People have come here from all over the world, and in the past, our doors have been open for others to come here. Well, that is exactly the description that we find of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. It talks about gates from every direction that are open. So when we look at the New Jerusalem, remember the story of the garden and God's original family we'll see that John develops a lot of themes and images here from Genesis, but things are a bit different from the original garden because God's family is all grown up into a new city, a new nation. So let's go to our text now in Revelation chapter 21, picking up in verse 9 and reading through verse 14. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues came to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, Three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now John begins his description by calling her the, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And that tells us precisely who he's talking about. He's talking about the church. And ecclesia, if you look at the word ecclesia in Greek in the New Testament, which is where we get our word church, really captures this idea in the original Greek in that particular culture as a political group. A polis or a body politic, that was an ecclesia. So John is thinking very much in terms of what the church is here in describing this holy city. Now if you turn back to chapter 17 of Revelation, you'll see a parallel that John wants to present. We're kind of coming, jumping in late on. Go back to Revelation chapter 17 and notice how the very same basic ideas are talked about in describing another woman in Revelation. John says in Revelation 17, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, 
With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So John is presenting these two women in the book of Revelation and the description, there's a lot of similarities and contrasts between the description we read in Revelation 21 and this description of the, of the prostitute in Revelation 17. For example, John sees the bride from a mountain but sees the prostitute from the desert. Both are all dressed up but the clothing is different. The bride is wearing a bright, very bright clothing. You could probably imagine a white wedding dress to capture that. Bright as the sun. But the prostitute wears bold clothing, purple and scarlet, red clothing, which is the preferred color of prostitution historically. And notice that both women are ornamented with gold and jewelry and pearls. All three have both, uh, are on both women. But the description of the prostitute lacks any elegance. She's drab even though her gold glitters. If you look at those, those descriptions, it's very clear how that comes across. And we are told that the prostitute was drunk with the blood of the saints, which tells us her identity as well. We know that she, who persecuted the church in the New Testament, and by the very fact that this woman commits adultery, we have a pretty good two, two evidences there that this is talking about Israel after the flesh, the Jews in the first century, because they were the ones who were married to God. And you cannot commit adultery unless you are married. So there's a real good way of looking at these two women in the book of Revelation as Israel after the flesh, those who rejected the Messiah and yet claimed the covenant relationship with God and the church who embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And John puts those two women side by side. Notice how the holy city comes into view for John in 21.10, in Revelation 21.10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The way I presented the early verses of, of chapter 21 last week, I showed how John in, in, in chapter 21 is following the pattern of what we see back in Genesis. Now, I believe that the Genesis is actually a big part of Revelation 22 with the millennium. I think the millennium is drawn straight out of the long lifespan in early Genesis. But in chapter 21, we have... A new creation event. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And then we have the introduction of a new city, which is a garden city. And then we saw how also John talks about a promise of a death sentence, the second death, which we saw is very much connected back to what takes place early in Genesis with the cowardly nature of Adam and how he led his family into the fall. And of course, all the other things that go on in early chapters of Genesis which lead to covenant death. So, there's a pattern here that um, these things are 
following from the order and the details that we saw back in Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the garden. God put the garden there and he told Adam about a death sentence. Well, we have the exact same order here. God created the new heavens and the new earth. He, he has this introduction of the holy city and then he tells through John about a second death and describes what that looks like. And really what you have here is, to put it the best way I can, is the old heavens and the old earth renewed. In, in Greek that's very clear because in our English, the word new, we only have one word for new. But in Greek, there's two Greek words for new that have different meanings. There's neos, which means like new in time, something brand new. We might like think of that as like a new car. And then there's kainos, which is new in quality or new in substance. You might think of that as regeneration or resurrection or those kinds of things. Well, the new heavens and new earth here is, is used with kainos. So it's a refurbishment or a, a regeneration concept there with this, this idea of new. So it's the old heavens and the old earth all grown up. might be another way of looking at it, but it's connected to the old heavens and the old earth. And you can see that because of the sea. The sea plays a big role in the old creation in Genesis 1, etc., and we saw last week how the second death is related to the first promise of death in the garden, just as the city garden is related to the first garden. So there's a, there's a per- perfectly fine order here that, Jan- that John is following when he's presenting this city. Now, think about that pattern back in Genesis. What comes next after the fall? You have Genesis chapter 4 with the story of Cain who had his own fall. And what does Cain do next? He goes out and he builds a city, right? Cain goes out and builds a city and he names it after his son and that's the first city that we see in Scripture. Actually built by a descendant of Cain. Cain starts it and his descendants continue it. And if you look at the parallel genealogy with Seth, it's very interesting to see that none of the, none of the descendants of Seth, the seed line, the covenant people of God at that point in time, were building cities. In fact, Abraham... We see a promise given to Abraham later in Genesis that he's going to have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the dust of the earth. But Abraham doesn't go and build a city. In fact, he's commended for that fact in Hebrews. We read in Scripture, in the in Scripture reading in Hebrews 11, he was commended because he waited on God for a city that God would build, whose architect and builder is God. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this idea of the heavenly city coming down out of heaven is related to a very big story that we have back in Genesis. Think about the big story of the city right after the flood. The Tower of Babel and the city of Babel, what were they designing to do with that tower? They were going to build upwards toward heaven. Okay, They were going to build a tower that reaches to heaven. And if you look at the um, particular story, they had good reasons to do this. I believe that it was actually designed to be protection from another flood. There's, there's, there's reasons for that. But they were going to build a city and a tower that goes from earth to heaven. And now you have John presenting the idea of the city of God which comes down from heaven to earth. And so what you have is God building his city toward the earth. There's other interesting connections too that may be a little far out there. The builders of Babel actually baked their brick in the fire. They actually fired their brick and that would actually make it help it be waterproof and maintain bricks would stay stay sturdy in, in water, not like mud brick. Also in this city here, we know from the rest of the New Testament that these are stones that are also fired, right? We saw Pentecost flames of fire upon the believers. 
And they are living stones being joined together in a house. So we have fired stones in both things. Also, the idea of, of brick in the Babel story is that they're all the same and they're basically muscled into place, etc. Whereas when you see the building going on with a temple in Solomon's day, they were to use natural stones and not cut the stones. They're going to be God's stones rather than formed and fashioned by the hands of man. So I actually think that there's a lot of Babel playing by looking at that pattern of Genesis in this image of the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 11. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Of course, the heavenly city has a heavenly appearance. And when John says it shone with the glory of God, you should think of all the stories about the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. This was the glory of God. A pillar of cloud and fire that led the people through the wilderness in the days of Moses. A fire on top of the mountain. That was the Shekinah glory that descended upon the mountain at Sinai. We have smoke that filled the tabernacle at the completion of the, of the tabernacle. And we have the smoke that filled the temple in Solomon's day as well. And we have the smoke that filled the temple when Isaiah received his vision as well. This was the Shekinah glory. And so what John is seeing here is the Shekinah glory is now joined with this city that's coming down out of God. God is building on his way to earth. And we tend to think of John's description in the abstract as you know the glory cloud, but I really think that the John's experience here in the first century would open this up in ways that sometimes is, is sort of lacking to us. John was talking about his own experience here. Let me read you a story about the Shekinah glory and what happened to the Shekinah glory in the first century. And this would have been right about the time that John was writing the book of Revelation. There was a later image of this transfer of God's glory to the church when on Pentecost of AD 66, as the priests in the temple were going about their duties, there was heard a violent commotion and din, followed by a voice as of a host crying, We are departing thence. This departure of the deity from the temple at Pentecost of AD 66 was exactly 36 years to the day after the Holy Spirit was first given in power to the apostles and the others at the first Christian Pentecost, recorded in Acts 2. And now on the same Pentecost day, the witness was given that God himself was abandoning the temple at Jerusalem and this meant that the temple was no longer a holy sanctuary and that the building was no more sacred than any other secular building. Remarkably, even Jewish records show that the Jews had come to recognize that the Shekinah glory of God had left the temple at this time and remained over the Mount of Olives for three and a half years. During this period, a voice was heard to come from the region of the Mount of Olives asking the Jews to repent of their doings. This has an interesting bearing on the history of Christianity because we now know that Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected from the dead on the Mount of Olives. The exact region, the Jewish records say, the Shekinah glory of God remained for three and a half years after its departure from the temple on Pentecost of AD 66. The Jewish reference states that the Jews failed to heed this warning from the Shekinah glory, which they called a bet kol, a voice of God, and that it left the earth and retreated back to heaven just before the final siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. From Pentecost 8066, 
No thinking person among the Christians who respected these obvious miraculous signs associated with the temple could believe that the structure was any longer a holy sanctuary of God. Josephus himself summed up the conviction of many people who came to believe that God had turned away even from his own sanctuary and that the temple was no more the dwelling place of God because the deity has fled from the holy places. So what John sees here is the glory, Shekinah glory of cloud moving from his earthly sanctuary to his holy city. The glory cloud is God's presence with his people. And this description of, of, of verse 11 has more connections back to Genesis as well. John says that the city had the brilliance, uh, city had brilliance like that of a very precious jewel like jasper clear as crystal. Well, the word for brilliance there is actually luminary, as in light-bearing, heaven-dwelling things like sun, moon, and stars, and comets, and things like that. This very same word is used in the Septuagint in Genesis 1 about the sun, moon, and stars created on day 4. And so that should help you understand the reference to jasper because the sun, or the light, is what John called Jesus in his gospel. Jesus is the light of the world, the luminary of the world. And so the city bears this light, shines very bright in this light. And this reference to Jasper actually goes back to Revelation 4 as well because John describes the throne of God as looking like Jasper. And so really what John's doing is putting all of these different images together and saying that this holy city looks like God. It is heavenly. It is shining with the glory of Christ in everything that it does. It is bright. The whole city is reflecting God's glory. And by the way, the temple in Jerusalem was designed just like this. It was designed to look just like this. I have a customer over in Bozeman I've worked for for many years who has a copper roof on their house. And I was, I was fortunate enough to be the one to actually do the work. I think Andre was with me when we did the first work on, on cleaning up this particular place. And I remember this brand new copper roof was so bright it was unbelievable. I had to get up on the roof and do window cleaning on top of the roof and the sun would bounce off the copper and it would just basically blind you. In fact, I could drive on the interstate and I could see that place eight or ten miles away at least if the sun was right because the sun bounced right off the copper. Well, now that copper roof is tarnished. It's black, so it's not shiny like it was. Imagine a gold-covered temple. That's what this temple was in Jerusalem. And this thing, imagine the sun hitting a gold-colored temple in the morning or in the afternoon and bouncing off that and blinding you. That's what the temple was all about. It was, to be, it was made to shine and reflect the sunlight coming at it from outside. It was made to, to picture all of this aspect of what John is talking about with this new Jerusalem. That is the symbol of us the holy city that reflects the light of God which shines down from heaven. Now it's the entire city. And here's something that's different because in the Old Testament, this was just the temple that had the gold. Now John's talking about the entire city being covered in gold, precious, stone, precious stones, and the whole city shining like the luminaries, like the sun above. Verse 12 and 13. 
he had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. Notice that the city is open. It offers itself to the world. And later we read that the nations come into her. And by the way, this is nothing new. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. That was the whole point of giving Israel the law so that the nations around them would see how wise and, and, and good their God was. Old Israel was supposed to be open. Well, this is just the, the fullest picture of that with the new city, the new Jerusalem. But, but what happened to Israel? She became proud and arrogant in her position and rather than serving God humbly by ministering to the nations around her, she became closed. You notice that by the time of Christ, they had this very closed idea about who God's people were to be. And the way the Jews treated the Gentile Christians violated God's purposes for Israel and also violated the image that John offers of a city with gates open. And literally in Greek it is from the east, from the north, from the south, and from the west. From every direction the gates are open. Notice that verse in verse 12 that there are angels, 12 angels at 12 gates. That should look familiar to you. It goes right back to Genesis. Remember there was... There was a cherubim, plural, at the gate of Eden, which guarded the way to the tree of life. And you could also probably think about the angel that Mary saw after the resurrection, the two angels in the tomb, one at the head and one at the foot of the missing body of Christ. Well, here you have angels at the gates basically welcoming these immigrants who seek citizenship in the city that God built, and they guard the way against enemies who would do God's city harm because later we're going to find out that the tree of life is inside the city. So you still have this theme of the angels guarding the entryways into the city. But rather than one entryway, you have twelve. Verse 14. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles. Now here is something very familiar. The foundation of the city, city are men. The twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, a lot of people insist, and I grew up being taught this, a lot of people insist that this is a physical city that we're going to see one day coming down out of heaven. And so this, many, many, many Christians, I would say the vast majority of Christians, outside of probably the Orthodox Church and maybe the Catholic Church, the vast majority of at least Protestants would say this city is something that we're looking forward to coming down that we're going to see someday. But notice, if you're talking about a physical, literal city, well then, you're talking about a physical, literal foundations as well. And so, the absurdity of that would be, think about walking on the street of gold, which talks about later in this passage, and looking down and asking, hey Peter, am I too heavy for you? That's how absurd that is. Okay? These are foundations of the apostles. Well, if we read our Bibles, we'll see that he, John is saying nothing different than what Paul taught. Ephesians chapter 2. Watch the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. He's talking about citizenship. But fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles 
and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building, that would be temple, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, nobody that I know of thinks about the church as being future. Everyone agrees that the church is talking about right here and right now, at least going back to Acts 2. Now, I, I personally would say the church begins with Adam and Eve, but that's, that's a very minority view. Most people don't believe that. But everybody agrees that the church is here now. Well, Paul's talking about the very same thing built on the foundation of the apostles as John's talking about the, uh, the city built on the foundation of the apostles of the Lamb. And that proves that this holy city is God's church. And it's been here, I would say, since the covenant began in some form. And so what happens is people tend to read this new Jerusalem, this holy city of God, like the Samaritan woman. I've, I've emphasized that example over and over and over again. They think in terms of a physical city and they totally miss what John's talking about. This is a holy city. This is the church, the place where God dwells that shines the light of the gospel all around. You know what's remarkable about the New Jerusalem? It has 12 gates named after the 12 tribes of Israel and it has 12 foundations named after the 12 apostles. Notice how, notice how Paul, or John brings those two things together in one city. They're all in the same city. It's all the same city. It's not like you got an old city over here and you got to throw that away and they get a new city. No, no. They're all together in this one city. This shows the fundamental unity of Israel and the church in covenant history. Wherever you see Israel in the Old Testament, you see the church. And wherever you see the church in the New Testament, you see Israel. They are one and the same. And that, that, this image here of bringing together the tribes of Israel and the foundation of the apostles brings that very clear. And actually, the, the language of the, of the Old Testament in Greek makes it very clear as well. Because in Greek, the word ekklesia, which we use for the church all the way through the New Testament, is used of Israel all the way back. And you look at the way Stephen is talking about in Acts and Peter's talking about the ekklesia in the, old, in the wilderness, the ekklesia this, and he's talking about the Old Testament. It's been there. It's, it's this one body that goes from glory to glory across the Bible. They all live in the one city that God built. And John makes no distinction about the living or the dead either. Kind of a profound thought. But this city that you live in is the same city that all of the saints of old are living in right now as well. They all live in one city that God built. Now we'll continue later with John's description of the New Jerusalem, but there is something to consider. Why does John go to such length in describing the New Jerusalem? Why does he go give all of this detail and emphasize all of these different things of beauty and, and jewels and gold and, and clothing and brightness and brilliance? He does so because she is beautiful. To John, she is beautiful. A bride adorned for her husband. And what John did was he defined himself and the congregations he served in terms of this city. He was first and foremost a citizen of Jerusalem. He happened to be in the Roman Empire, but he was first and foremost a citizen of the holy city. It's not like he was 
a good Roman who had a reservation for the holy city after he died. That's not the way John is presenting this. He was first and foremost a part of this city and everything else was secondary. The New Jerusalem grabbed all of his attention and this is actually one of the longest passages in the book of Revelation because he goes to such lengths describing this city in many different ways, drawing from all the Old Testament, incorporating the experience of the early church, incorporating the themes of redemption all over the place. And the early Christians understood themselves as a distinct body politic. They understood themselves as a distinct city. The early Christians were an ecclesia. Like I said, that word has this political connotation to it. And this is what we need to recapture, the fact that we are first and foremost defined by the city of God, the city that God built. You are not an American who also happens to live in the church. It's the other way around. You live in the holy city and you happen to be an American. You see the difference? It's how you define yourself and how John shows us here to be defined. So order your lives according to the beauty and the power John sees in the New Jerusalem. Do not order your life by the dictates of the various cities of man. Because if you think about it, ordering yourselves by the dictates of the city of man, which we see going back in the story, all the way back to Genesis with Cain, with the Tower of Babel, and all the things that go on there. It's that priority, that order, which creates virtually all the large-scale problems in our world. Billions of people around our world define themselves by their own city of man. And what happens? They define themselves by their own city and they think their own city is very nice and beautiful, but that city over there is ugly, right? And there's people over there in that city that think their city is nice and beautiful, but they think this city here is ugly. And so you get this conflict, perpetual conflict at every level, economics, wars, you name it. Because people define themselves by the city of man. Now what would happen if the president of Iran defined himself by this holy city and Americans define themselves as this by this holy city? You'd be neighbors, exactly. You'd be friends. That's right. And so understand that this holy city is at the center of history. And this holy city defines what takes place in this world. And this story that we have of the Bible from beginning to end reveals the source and the, the way things develop in our world and it is very predictable in those terms. That will be what changes the world in the future as it has changed the world in the last 2,000 years. The city that God built is your real home, the true paradise of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for what You've done for us and in us. We thank You and praise You for, for calling us out into Your light. We thank You for the blessings that You pour out on us every day of sustenance, the work for our hands, the help for our bodies, the beauty for our enjoyment, and our beautiful families that You have blessed us with. We pray for wisdom and strength as we are called to be overcomers like You and work and tend Your garden and live in Your holy city. In Jesus Christ's name we pray these things.